Well, good morning to you. So good to be back with you this fine summer's morning. Thank you for that reading. And thank you so much for the last hymn that we sang together. Those of you who were here last Sunday may have recognized the final line of the first verse, but it is a lovely carol by Mary MacDonald, and I quoted it last week, uh, and it's rarely sung, so thank you for uh, picking it. It did my heart good, so thank you for your thoughtfulness. During the 1977 film, A Bridge Too Far, there is a scene where Major Julian Cook was uh, leading his men uh, across the river. Uh, Major Cook is a real lifetime hero. He was played by actor uh, uh, Robert Redford. This major had to take his troops across the river in very small and very flimsy, frail boats under withering fire. And as he was leading his men across, the, 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 the picture depicts what was true in that case by this, this man. And that was you could hear him and many of his men repeating loudly that portion of the rosary. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. These are the words that you find here in this conversation that the angel had with Mary and recorded for us in this first chapter of Luke's Gospel. And this morning I want to continue with our, with our Christmas theme. I want to look at Mary, especially the, the, the content of that, that song which we recognize and know as the Magnificat, but also the, the context which gave rise to this particular song. My outline you will find has been kindly uh, uh, printed on the back of your bulletin, so that will give you an idea again where we are going. The first major thought I want you to, to consider is the, the godly submission that Mary reveals. And you get that from verse 26 of chapter 1 through to verse 38. Uh, Alistair Begg, I'm sure, is a name known to many of you, a Scottish preacher. Uh, he has uh, clearly shown us how this portion is easily broken down. If you have a, uh, an NIV with you this morning, there are some repeated words here. I'm thinking of verse 27 and the words pledged to be. And then in verse 31... You will be. And then verse 34. How will this be? And fourthly, verse 38. May it be. That's a simple outline of this section. It begins with this announcement from the angel. Pledged to be. 
And this creates for Mary a a state of anxiety and perplexity. For you notice in verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Those words, greetings, O favored one. Major Julian Cook's Catholicism, because he was in life uh, a very devout Roman Catholic, he regarded these words as meaning, as Roman Catholics do, that when God saw Mary, he saw one who was worthy to bear the Christ child. That when God looked at her, he saw this young woman full of grace. Grace sufficient to give to others. Hence the rosary is prayed, Hail Mary, full of grace. Grant us the grace, grant us the deliverance, grant us the safety that we're seeking for now. However, these words... You who are highly favored actually point us to God as the one who is full of grace. And the one who dispenses grace to Mary so that she will have the grace sufficient for that service which God is calling her to carry out. The grace of God coming to Mary, evidenced by the promise of his presence, the Lord is with you, by his power over you, that you see at the beginning of verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the grace given to Mary in order that he may complete the purpose which has been designed for her, that she will indeed bear a son and call him Jesus. It was this provision of grace that enables Mary to deal with this issue at hand. It was this grace that comes from God that causes her to wonder, Why and how? So that from a state of anxiety and perplexity, you notice verse 31, a sense of incredulity. You will be. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And you notice, interestingly, that the details here, because you, you think back 2,000 years, they did not have the machinery, they did not have the technology that we have. And yet this slip of a girl learns information that is only readily available to us and has been in recent years. She is told, it's going to be a boy. You're going to have a son. So you don't have to worry about whether you knit pink or blue booties. You know exactly what it is. 
And you don't have to enter into some family discussion and debate and cause turmoil in the family because his name is going to be Jesus. And his future is assured. But he will be, and I'm reading from verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. But how... Will this be, says Mary? How will this be? This, this, this news, this information staggers her. It, it appears indeed as impossible to her because of her circumstance, because of her situation, because of her, her status. How will this be? And the answer, of course, if you remember Charles Wesley's carol, Hark, The herald angels sing. The third verse of that carol begins with these words. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. This was the answer to Mary. How will this be? He will be heaven-born. Verse 35. It's going to be heaven's doing. It's going to be because of God's presence and God's power and God's purpose. And so to encourage this young lass, Mary is told two things. Look at verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And then note verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Perplexity. The whole whole question of how incredulity. But now humility. Humility. Verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Here, my friends, is the evidence of God's grace in her life. Humility is the fruit of God's grace in one's life. And the actual term that Mary employs here is one that expresses complete obedience and and ready submission. One whose will is no longer her own. One who would sit quietly, silently, submissively, watching for any hand signal from her mistress. It's the picture that you get from Psalm 123 and verse 2. The handmaid just watching for any indication that some action, some obedience is required. What was she later to say? Look over at verse 48 and verse 49. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now what would this humble, gracious, godly response bring to Mary? What what would she reap in light of this gracious submission? Disruption, denunciation, danger, difficulty. Mary's humility would bring a shadow over her decency, her integrity, and her morality. It would bring embarrassment and hurt. For betrothed to Joseph, she must have been painfully aware that she would now face the stigma of unwed motherhood. This humility would lead her down the path that we were looking at last week with Joseph. Because she shared in that hurt and that pain and that grief. Yet modestly, Quietly and deliberately, she embraces God's will for her life. And so we see a stunning fidelity. What does she say at the end of verse 38? May it be. May it be. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here is Mary's confidence and blessed readiness to accord with what had earlier perplexed her and troubled her. By God's grace, there has been this evidence of grace in her accepting the promise that God will be with her. And relying on the power of God to bring it to pass. In humbly sitting before God. And now the grace of believing God. Let it be to me now. Let it be as it has been spoken. And such faith was affirmed by Elizabeth's beatitude that you get in verse 45. And Mary's faith was not that of herself. Because only by God's gift of grace was she able to make this wondrous confession. God worked in her life. And you see, what what we see being illustrated here, what we see being pictured here, what we see being painted here, what we're being told here, is simply the demonstration of that text that I'm sure many of you know so well. We're saved, how? By grace alone, through faith alone. For by grace are you saved, through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Hail thou favoured one. Not saying there's something special about you naturally, Mary, but that God has looked upon you and come to you and has given to you the grace and the faith and the humility in order to obey him. 
her gracious submission. But then we go on to verse 39 to 45, where I put to you the gracious support that Mary receives. Because following this this conversation, as it were, with the angel, she undertakes a dangerous journey through the hill country. She, she goes on a, a trip, as it were, something around the vicinity of about 100 kilometers. And Mary comes to Elizabeth, where the Bible describes a joyous scene of, of spirit-filled wonder and worship. And how precious and how privileged this young lass had, this young girl had. Because think, Mary's only, Mary may have been only 16 14 years of age, just a youngster. How wonderful that she has someone that she can turn to. Someone to to go to. That she had a wise, tender, and much experienced counselor in Elizabeth. That that as as Naomi had, had to be there for Ruth. So Elizabeth was there for Mary, that she has someone to talk to, someone to tell her troubles to, someone to open her heart to. She has someone to go to. And as a little aside, I trust that in a fellowship, we know something of that. That we've got someone we can go to. And someone we can talk with. Here she comes. And she comes to that house which most likely was in Hebron. And that home becomes a place of celebration, confirmation, exclamation. To summarize it, I can do no better than to use the terms given by uh, John MacArthur. He, He puts it in this way, so succinctly. That here you find a personal confirmation. That when Mary saw Elizabeth and heard how God had answered their prayers and had worked so so wonderfully, Mary's faith was was fortified. And her hope is sustained. If if God has has worked in this, this aged Elizabeth, and after all these years now granted to her the desire, then surely he can do for me what her ears had heard. About Mary, or rather Elizabeth in verse 36, Mary now sees with her eyes a personal confirmation. But then there's a physical confirmation that you get in verse 41 and verse 44. And that is the babe in the womb of Elizabeth, John the Baptist, leaps for joy when he hears the message about Messiah's conception. That, that God literally moved the, the yet-to-be-born child to bring assurance to his own young servant whom he is employing. There's this physical confirmation. And there's a prophetic confirmation. Verses 42 to 45. Here is the first song sung at the advent of Messiah. Look at the words. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Here is a song that, that, that's, that's, that's furnished by the Spirit of God. And as is the ministry of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is given to exalt Christ. So even here, the Spirit of God inspires this song which focuses upon God's Son. And as one of the early church fathers, Maximus of Turin, put it, not yet born, John already prophesies. He's already pointing, as he would later on, to the Lamb of God. Another old writer put it in these terms, John is the only child who ever turned his mother's womb into a pulpit. So here is Mary's encouraging encounter. Buoyed by Elizabeth's declaration, blessed are you among women. That is, God has delighted to show you his grace and and favor. And then buoyed by the fact of Elizabeth's recognition and confession that the child in Mary's womb is divine. The Son of God. Because what, what does she call the babe? Well, notice the words. Why is this granted to me, verse 43, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in the room leapt for joy. And who is she referring to? The Lord. The Lord himself. That she sees and she understands and she recognizes the nature of the one whom Mary is bearing. And so Mary, now inspired by the Spirit, speaks out her great song, the Magnificent. And how, how natural it is in the sense that God has come to this girl. God has spoken to this one. God has given great promises and a great future. And she's spoken with with her relative Elizabeth. What more than to, to burst forth into song. And isn't that true worship? That worship isn't just some cold liturgy. It's not just something that we come and do here each Sunday morning because you're supposed to do it. it. It arises from our heart. It arises from the fact that God has come to us. That God has created faith in us. That God has enabled us to have faith in him. That God has humbled us under his mighty hand. That God is working out his purposes in our lives. So that as we come in worship Sunday by Sunday, we come with a heart aflame that we cannot do other than to tell out my soul the glories of the Lord. That we come to sing not just because we may be a choir, But there's something burning inside of us. There's something bursting to to come out of us. And that is praise to God. And so here is Mary, touched by God, assured by God, blessed by God. And she can do no other now than praise this God. 
The glorious song that Mary records. And it's there for us from verse 46 to 56. And how can we describe it and profit from it? I I trust that even this morning as it was read to us, you recognized that this song is thoroughly biblical. Thoroughly biblical. Some of you may know how C.H. Spurgeon, that great prince of preachers, uh, spoke of um, John Bunyan. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He said, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. His very soul is full of the word of God. And if that was true of John Bunyan, It was also true of Mary. Because this Magnificat, a title that arises from the Latin translation of the very first verse of this this hymn, the Magnificat is filled to overflowing with Scripture. As you read it, you know many similarities between Hannah's hymn of praise in the Old Testament There are allusions here in this song of Mary to the the book of Ruth, to the powerful performance of God at the Exodus, the prophetic promises given through Isaiah. She refers to God's covenant with Abraham, his blessings and promises to David. Mary in this, this magnificent shows a deep Knowledge of the Old Testament's themes and topics and prophecies. It reveals, you see, that this young person's heart and mind were saturated with the Word of God. That growing up, Mary had, had heard and read and studied, and pondered, and memorized God's word. For what we hear from her simply, yet sublimely, reveals the heart of this girl to us. For what did our Lord Jesus himself say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so here's Mary coming to sing. And she sings scripture. That which was in her heart, that which filled her heart, that which thrilled her heart. She brings out in song. This this song is, is thoroughly biblical. But due to that, of course, it is eminently theological. Eminently theological. Now what is theology? Well, to put it very basically and simply, theology is, of course, the study of God. It's knowing him. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, the God who is there and who is not silent. He has spoken. 
The Bible is God's word and God's word and God's revelation about himself in order that we might know him. And God at times applies human terms to himself in order that we might know what he is like. That, that, that fancy term, anthropomorphisms. The use of human terms to help us to understand God himself. God condescends to employ terms we know in order to communicate to us truths about himself. And this is what you get here in the song. Look at verse 48. What does Mary sing? He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. What's Mary stating here? God is a God who looks. He is a God who sees. He is a God who has, in human language, eyes. The God of the Bible looks. There's nothing hidden from his eyes. He saw Joseph in prison. So Noah in the ark. He saw Jonah in that great fish. He saw Paul and Luke in that terrible storm. He sees all that's going on. He sees you, and he sees me. Our fickleness and our foolishness, our waywardness and our wickedness. But he also sees our desires for him. He also sees the longings we have for him. He also sees our desire to be like him. And he sees our grief when we fail him. He sees the loneliness we face, the tears we shed, the problems that confront, the concerns that we we feel and we entertain and that we have over our children and our our grandchildren growing up in this, this fallen world. God is a God who sees Nothing in all this world is hidden from him with whom we have to do. And I've probably used the illustration with you before. Forgive me for repeating myself, but I'm, I'm an old man. Uh, the, the story of the wee girl who comes home from Sunday school. Her mother says to her, well, what did you learn in Sunday school this morning? Oh, she says, Mommy, I learned that God has eyes and he's always looking and he's always watching us. He sees me all the time. Her mother says, Oh, isn't that a terrible thing to know? Isn't that an awful thing to know? And the wee girl says, no, 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 mummy. God loves us so much he can't take his eyes off us. What a truth. Isn't that true, beloved? He sees us because he loves us. He's watching over us. This was Mary. He's looked. God is great. God is glorious. And he sees his eyes. But then notice also. As you read verse 51 through 53, what does he refer to there? That he has an arm. That he has an arm. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. And what a picture she paints here. 
What's, what's she saying in these verses? That he is an army, has scattered the proud, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate, he's filled the, the hungry with good things, he sent the rich ones empty away. What, what's, what's Mary suggesting here? I've quoted Alistair Begg, a Scotsman, this morning, and I've quoted Sid Spurgeon, an Englishman, this morning, so let me go the whole circle. Let me quote an Irishman to you. Alec Motier, commenting on Psalm 74 and 75, which really lies behind the words here of, of Mary. He, 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 he said this, At the center of our troubles, dangers, loss, sorrows, When hostile forces are on top and rampant and triumphant, our course is to remind ourselves what we believe about God. We are to tell ourselves not how horrible life is, how unfairly I have been treated, how insurmountable and unsupportable my sorrow is, but how kingly, saving powerful and provident, how totally in charge God is, how fully in command of history, how secure is his world, how subservient to him are earth's arrogant powers. These, says Motir, are the bread and butter truths of the scriptural revelation of God. They speak of a God in charge, a God who makes all the decisions, A God fully and truly God, a God worth trusting. And such were the truths Mary recognized and realized and recorded and rejoiced in here in verses 51 to 53. And can I say, if these truths were real to teenage Mary, how much they need to be put into the hearts and minds of teenagers today. In, in the picture today of, of, of hopelessness of this world, to help our young people know that our God reigns and he is sovereign over all and that he has the arm and he moves the mighty and he moves the humble. God has eyes, perception. He has an arm, he has power. And then there's another feature here that, that Mary employs to help us know what God is like. And that is in verse 54 and 55, he speaks. God is a mouth. God speaks. He is a God who gives and keeps his word. God is a promise keeper so that we can bank on what he says. He is faithful. And so Mary sees what is happening to her, verse 49, in terms of God's covenant promise, verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and his offspring forever. That God has spoken and he is keeping his word. And what he's doing with me and dwelling with me and Guiding me, it's all in accordance with what he once said. God keeps his word. He has an eye, he has an arm, he has a mouth. Let me give you one more. He has a memory. God has a memory. You look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. In remembrance of his mercy. 
He perceives, he has power, he keeps his promises, and he shows pity. He shows pity. Go back to verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. How wonderful is this? What is our God like? He is mighty and he is holy. Tremendous truths to know about God, but yet terrible truths. Because if God is only mighty and holy, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Because we're sinners, lost and undone. But you know, in the Bible, little words mean a lot. For what's the word that follows name in verse 49? He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And, and, don't miss it. He is mighty, he is holy, and he is merciful. And he is merciful. And in his mercy and remembrance of his mercy, Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. That he looked on our misery. He looked and had pity upon us. And so he sends his son. He is mighty. He is holy. But he is also merciful. The Magnificat is thoroughly biblical, eminently theological, and finally, searchingly personal. How does it begin? How does it begin? Some of you may have been brought up in a congregation that taught you this shorter catechism. Uh, I've been a Baptist preacher, I've been an independent preacher, but my background was Presbyterian, so I grew up being catechized. The first question of the shorter catechism, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Now, I'm sure that uh, you have many goals and aims and ambitions in life, but what ought to be the main one? What ought to be the supreme one? What ought to be the chief one? In other words, why did God create us? Why did God create us? The answer of the Westminster Divines was the chief end of man is to glorify God. And that's what Mary is doing here. Look at her testimony. Verse 48. My soul magnifies the Lord. And in reality, the rest of her song is simply a song unpacking and unfolding that. But it raises the question, of course, how do we glorify God? How do we show the majesty and the might and dominion and power and glory and holiness and truth and beauty of God? How do we do this? Well, Jesus said, I have glorified you on earth. And how could he say that? Well, he went on to say, because I have finished the work you gave me to do. So, my question to you this morning is, uh, logically I trust, what work has he given us to do so that we might glorify him? 
And I think the catechism answers, and her answer probably arises from what Mary said. The chief end of man is to glorify God and, or if you're a piper person, by enjoying him forever. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit, verse 47, rejoices in God my Savior. How do we glorify God? By enjoying him. By delighting in him. So that our goal in life is to delight in God. It is to rejoice in Him. It is to find in Him all our satisfying fullness. Because only as we rejoice in Him do we magnify Him. Only as we seek after Him and depend upon Him and trust in Him do we set Him forth as being altogether glorious. Let me take you, and I'm conscious of my time, but let me just take you as I close to, to Sam. Sam 147, just there near the book, the end of the book of Psalms. Sam 147, verses 10 and 11. What does it say? God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor does he find pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and who hope in his steadfast love. God takes pleasure in our dependency. God is glorified when we rejoice in all that we find and we have in him. Mary has seen something that causes her to forget herself. That which God has done, is doing, and will do. That her goal is God himself. To know him. To enjoy him and thus to magnify him forever. And so we read the depths of her feelings. We see the display of her feelings. We see the wonder and the amazement and the adoration and those things which are the very essence of Christian worship and prayers. And so as we approach Christmas, I pray that it may be with hearts full of joy. Because of the mighty things, the marvelous things, the merciful things that he has done for us personally. That when we come to sing together, we come to sing out of hearts that have been set free by the mercies and grace of God. Mary's Magnificat is simply a guide to us. This is not mere a religious emotionalism. It is the song of one who quietly ponders and treasures, who bears shame and suffering with, with steadfast strength, with joyful solemnity, and with willing submission. Pledge to be. You will be. How will this be? May it be to me, Lord, according to your word. May that be our response this Christmas, that our joy in the Lord may be full. And his name magnified. Let's pray together.
Father, help us to understand and take it in. Be with us, Lord Jesus. We ask thee to stay close by us forever. And help us, we pray. Bless all your dear children and your tender care. And fit us for heaven to live with thee there. In Jesus' name. Amen.